If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, if you uh, do not have a Bible, invite you to look on a Bible. really want everybody to be looking at a, either a physical copy of a Bible or one on your phone. Uh, if you're using a black Bible that's provided for you in the rack in front of your chair or somewhere around you, uh, we're going to be on page 1015 towards the back of your Bible. We have looked so far in this uh, second section of Peter's letter where he's, he's addressing how are we to live as exiles in this world. We've looked in verses 13 to 17 regarding how Christians are to live as citizens in this world, yet also citizens of a greater kingdom. That we are to show proper submission to the authorities that God has placed over us in our country. And then in verses 18 to 25... We saw how Christians are to respond and act as servants in the context of the first century, servants that were owned by a slave master, and in our context, how we are to respond as good workers of those that are our employees, our authorities that God has placed over us, how do we respond as a Christian exile in this world, even when we are treated unfairly. And then in the past two weeks, we've seen Peter moved from citizens of, of, the, of Rome, or in our context, citizens of the United States of America, to servants, and then he moves within the home in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. How are wives... Christian wives to act when they may be in exile in their own home with a husband that's an unbeliever. And then verse 7, we looked at last week, the husband's role of living as a Christian exile with his wife. How the husband is to lead his wife, to care for her, to honor her, in the way God desires. And we're going to note here in this next section of 1 Peter 3, today, this morning, we're looking at verses 8 to 12. And you see that Peter begins verse 8 with the word finally. He's already talked and said uh, on, uh, on two occasions here in verse 3, likewise, wives, referring to wives now in the same way he was addressing citizens and servants. He says, likewise, you wives. Then in verse 7, he says, likewise, you husbands. And now he has some final words here. He says, now finally, regarding how we live as exiles in this world, I have one further thing to tell you in the context of these household codes that were so popular in Rome. And this morning we are going to look at our life in exile and how we are to live confidently as exiles awaiting a greater homeland. And in chapter 3, all the way to the end of chapter 3, from verse 8 all the way to verse 22, we are going to look at living confidently as exiles. In fact, when it comes to confident living, you don't have to look too far, even in our culture, to find various self-help techniques, to read various books, to hear various sayings or mantras, you know what a mantra is? It's kind of a saying that you repeat over and over again to yourself. You don't have to look very far to find different resources to help boost your confidence, to help boost your self-esteem. 
We live in a society where self-confidence comes from within. We're to look within ourselves. We're told that we can equip ourselves to better living, to greater opportunities, to more satisfaction in life by remembering our inherent goodness and our ability to achieve. That is the key to living confidently during your time on this earth. Uh, One example of this, one uh, uh, life coach, an author, an international speaker, writes this. We can rewire our brain with focus and and, and intention. And although our fears and limiting beliefs won't completely disappear, over time they lose their power over our daily thoughts and actions. Practicing mindfulness and meditation supports building new neutral pathways and consistently reciting positive mantras or sayings supports more positive thinking and self-talk. Now, I'll be the first one to admit that, that, that uh, there is helpful advice here. I mean, if we're all the time, we're just downing ourselves and we're talking, thinking bad about ourselves and, oh, I'm worthless and this and that, uh, you know, that's the wrong way to think. So there, there is truth mixed into this, but the fear is there's no foundational roots of confidence if we're only going that deep. I know when I look within my life, I, I have more to feel, to feel uh, I have more reason to feel less confident than to feel confident. That doesn't mean that my life is worthless, that doesn't mean that I'm no good, that doesn't mean woe is me, but that's just kind of reality. I think it's the same for you. You see, there's a greater way to have a sense of confidence in life. If we are simply uh, trying to put positive thoughts into our minds about, well, you know, I am good, I am this, I am that, and try to just come up with these positive mantras, you know, putting little stickers, um, you can do it, you know, believe in yourself, all of those things, if that's what we're going to, The danger is is that this is going to lead us down a path of self-absorption and self-sufficiency. It simply doesn't work in the long haul. First, in the book of 1 Peter, Peter directs our attention to show us as we think about living as exiles, as, as sojourners in this world, Peter wants us to think in a greater way than what we've just described. In fact, Peter never promises his readers better circumstances on this side of eternity. He never promises his readers societal advancement or cultural acceptance. Instead, he encourages Christians to follow in Jesus' footsteps by being willing to suffer before receiving reward. You see, the confidence that, that these Christians in the first century and Christians down through the centuries all the way to our current day, the confidence that we can receive in life It has to come from outside of ourselves. It has to come from something greater than ourselves. We're going to see in verses 8 to 22 over the next several weeks, and we're going to start to see in verses 8 to 12 that Peter lays down a greater confidence that we can have than just being confident from something that's within ourselves. 
At the end of the day, Peter wants to assure us as believers that we stand with Christ. If we are Christians, we are united to Christ. And at the end of the day, no matter what we see, we will stand victorious with Christ. So therefore, we can live and endure the current struggles of the day. So this morning, as we focus our attention at verses 8 to 12, and we see these uh, final instructions regarding these codes of life, we're going to see once again that our faithfulness, our perseverance is tied to where we find our identity. Let's once again say the main theme, the main focus of our series and what Peter is trying to tell us through God's word. Let's say this together. We are called to faithful perseverance and mission in light of our identity as the people of God. We're not called to perseverance and mission in light of our talents. We're not called to perseverance and mission in light of how popular we are, in light of our circumstances, in light of what we feel about ourselves. We look to our true spiritual identity in the reality of who we are because of Jesus is what fuels us for perseverance and mission. Let's have a word of prayer this morning. Lord, I pray that this morning as we open up the pages of your word, God, that you would speak to our hearts. We know that you are here in our midst. Lord, as we've seen in 1 Peter chapter 2, as we gather together as believers, we are your holy temple where your presence resides. So Lord, as we worship you through studying your word would the holy spirit take the words of scripture and plant them in our hearts some maybe for the very first time others again lord would you help us to live confidently as exiles in this world because we are connected to jesus and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Next week, we're having a guest speaker come uh, from, from Wellsboro Bible Church. Um, we're uh, figuring out whether that's going to be, uh, which of the pastors that's going to be. Uh, but uh, but uh, after next week, to this morning, and then the following two weeks, we're going to be looking at confident living as exiles. In verses 8 to 12 this morning... And uh, we're going to see that in order to live confidently as exiles in this world, we have to remember who we are. We're going to see in two weeks, or excuse me, uh, and we're going to see in two weeks that verses 13 to 17 show us we have to remember who we represent. And in verses 18 to 22, one of the most difficult passages in, in, the, in the Bible to interpret, many individuals will, will say, we're going to remember where our assurance lies. But this morning we're going to look at, in order to live confidently as God's people, we have to be remembering who we are. If we are not remembering who we are, we will not be living out of our true identity in Christ. We will be living out of some other sense of identity. Look at verse 8. Again, he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So as we are called to remember who we are, the first aspect of this that we have to realize is who we are transforms our focus. If we are truly believers as all of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 has, has completely focused on, if we have truly been born again 
We've been brought into a new family. We've been redeemed through the precious, priceless blood of Jesus, chapter 1, verse 18. The work of the gospel is going to begin transforming our thinking. In fact, Paul writes, we have been purchased, we've been bought, not to live for ourselves, but to live for Christ. You see, this transformation of our focus is an outworking of what Christ has done for us, and the result of that is we begin to develop a selfless focus in our lives. This is completely opposite to what Peter wrote in chapter 2, verse 1. Look at that negative list. Put away all malice or hatred, all deceit or lying, hypocrisy, you're one way to a certain group of people, and then you're another way to another group of people. You can act really nice at church, but man, you're a totally different person at school or at work or with your unsaved friends. Put away envy and all slander. You see, uh, verse 8 is the exact opposite of these things. Uh, Peter is saying, man, these things characterize somebody who's, who's an unbeliever, who's living for themselves. But if you have truly experienced rebirth through the power of the Holy Spirit, through what Jesus has done for you, this is the transforming work of the gospel. This is the result. Notice the text there says, finally, all of you. In other words, this isn't just for a select group of Christians. Peter's not saying, man, if you are really, 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 really committed to Christ, then this is what is at work in your heart, and this is what you're to strive for. And if you're not so committed to Christ, maybe you're, on the uncom you're an uncommitted Christian, well, maybe you can somehow think one day I'll work to these ideals. No, Peter says all of you. If you are a Christian, this is to be characteristic of your life. This is to be what by God's power you're asking him to transform you more and more and more to mirror these characteristics. There is no such thing in the scriptures as an uncommitted Christian. It's either you are a Christian and, and, and you are following Jesus or you're not. All of you are to be having these characteristics. So let's take a moment to look at what these things are. First of all, he says, all of you have unity of mind. There is a unity that is to be characteristic of God's people. What this is not saying, Peter is not saying, church, Christians, I want all of you to think the same way. How many of you know somebody that you and that other person, I mean, you think exactly alike all the time? Anybody like that? How many of you say, my, okay, we have a hand raised. How many of you say, my spouse and I, we always agree? Absolutely, all the time. <laughs> no, I won't say anything. <laughs> This is not talking about you have to think the same. What this is saying, this, this command for unity of mind, is Christians, there is to be a like-mindedness that you share with one another that stems from your common calling as children of God. And your common purpose to represent Jesus well. 
in the good times and in the context here, even in the face of suffering. You see, there is a unity that ties God's people together that is greater than we share the same hobbies, we like the same teams, we think the same way, we we view uh, all of these circumstances the same. No, there is a greater bond of unity that we, because of our bond in Christ, we have a common calling and a common purpose in living for God that produces unity in our relationships. Can I ask you, is that true of your life this morning? Or do you find yourself flying off the handle, getting offended, maybe even internalizing offenses just because you feel someone doesn't do something the way you want them to? Or just because someone doesn't do things according to how you've even suggested Or maybe you feel like someone didn't treat you the way you feel you deserve to be treated. Is that disrupting the unity that Jesus has purchased for us? Now, unity of mind does not mean that you do not confront sin. That you do not confront one another in love. But it means that we have to realize that divisiveness over these petty issues, it only hurts God's people and God's mission. How many churches have been destroyed because of stupid things? How many Christian relationships have been destroyed because of dumb disagreements? How many marriages have been ruined Because all of these little things were never taken care of and they've piled up for years and years until the couple say, forget it. It's too great. It can't be reconciled. And they totally forget the reality that nothing is impossible with God. That he is the one that brings unity. But the second characteristic here is sympathy. It's interesting, by the way, that all five of these words that, are, that, that Peter uses to describe what our focus, our selfless focus is to look like, they are words that describe family bonds in society. And what Peter is saying is the things that are to be characteristic of family relationships in a, a normal society home is even to be more so in the Christian community because you have a greater bond than than physical um, uh, likeness, family relation. You have a spiritual connectedness to a new family. That is a greater glue that holds us together. This word sympathy has the idea of a family sympathy, a family compassion for one another. In other words, I don't just look at you, you don't look at me as simply some other person or even a just another Christian. We look at each other as a brother, as a sister in Christ. And there is a love there because we are together in the family of God. But thirdly, he goes on and and he says this very thing, brotherly love. He's already mentioned brotherly love in chapter 1, verse 22. This love is to be characterized by believers. And then he mentions a tender heart, which is very closely aligned with the word sympathy. There is the idea again of compassion of tenderness. Being willing to inconvenience yourself on behalf of a fellow brother or sister in Christ. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I mean, man, we don't just uh, Paul doesn't just lay down this command, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, because it's a good thing to do. 
And we're going to see here in our passage this morning that there is a greater tie-in of why we pursue these things than just, yeah, they're really good things to do. Be a good moral person and do these things. I mean, we could get that from anywhere. We don't have to go to the church. We don't have to go to church. We don't have to read scriptures to just be moral people. No, there is a connection here that it is because of what Jesus has done for us. If our relationships are to mirror the type of love, the type of commitment that Jesus has for us, and he says that this is true in our, in our everyday relationships, in our marriage relationships, then man, I don't really have the right to just give up on a relationship, do I? There may have to be boundaries that are set. There may have to be tough conversations that are had, but I don't have the right to simply give up on a relationship. When it involves two believers... And then we read, lastly, a humble mind. Again, this is very closely parallel to the idea of being unified in mind. We cannot have a unity of mind unless we are of a humble mindset. How many of you know someone who, who, who is, it's always my idea, it's if I'm recognized, it's, it, it's me, it's all about me. How many of you know somebody? We should probably all raise our hands because we know ourselves, right? I didn't know how proud I was until uh, two li- life events happened. Number one, I got married. I didn't know how proud and selfish I was till I got married. That's not because Rachel kept preaching at me and nagging me. It's because I discovered it through experience that God in his loving grace showed me, hey, this is really what's in your heart. And the second time is having kids. Both of those things were great indicators that God used and is using every single day to show me my pride and selfishness. But man, if our heart is gripped by the good news of the gospel, if we are living out of our identity, not of who we are in ourselves, but who we are because of Jesus, then we are going to realize how completely dependent we are on God, and it's going to bring humility to our hearts and lives. This is, uh, this is a spirit that is focused on the work of Jesus in my life, my need for him. Now here's why this humbleness of mind is, is so significant when we remember That the Bible was not just written for us and our culture, but the Bible was written for every culture. When Peter wrote this back in the first century, humility was regarded as a sign of weakness and shame. If you were simply humble, if you would just turn the other cheek and walk away and not defend yourself, it was looked upon that you have an inability to defend your honor. The individuals to which Peter was originally writing, they lived in what's called a shame-honor society. In other words, what people thought of you made all the world of difference. Maybe it's not too unfamiliar from a lot of the things we experience. But man, humility in society was regarded as a weakness. I wonder how many of you are fighting for your own agendas, your own rights, simply because you don't want to be looked upon as weak when Jesus says, actually, that is a sign that you are a follower of me. You see, all of these descriptions here in verse 8 are descriptions of individuals that have been ransomed, as chapter 1 verse 18 says, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. There's a lot that that these Christians could have lived for, but Peter says they are all futile, they're vain, they're empty. Now that you're a follower of Christ, you're given a greater purpose to live out of. 
Is that your perspective this morning? But not only does the transforming work of the gospel as we remember who we are and we live life through our identity in Christ, not only does it start to produce a selfless focus in our life, but the byproduct of that is we also begin to develop an outward focus. You can't really have an outward focus when you're so focused on self, can you? What does an outward focus look like? In verse 9, Peter answers this question first negatively and then positively. First, he shows us what it doesn't look like. He says here, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. In other words, man, if somebody wronged me, the, the, the right response is, I've I'm, I'm, got to teach them a lesson. I'm going to wrong them right back. If someone is slandering me, man, I'm going to throw out a few slanders back at them. I'm going to teach them their lesson. See, many times we don't openly admit doing things like that, but I think that our perspectives the way we harbor grudges show us that. And it's interesting here in verse 9. In verse 8, Peter is talking mainly about our relationships among believers. But in verse 9, he says, you know what? These things are not just true in the Christian community. They are true in the world as well. In verse 9 and following, he is talking regarding our relationships, not simply in the church, but in society as well. It's easy to love, to show humility, to be tender-hearted, to have brotherly love. It's easier to do that to people that we do have a common bond with than people that we don't. And what Peter is saying when he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, he's saying, look to your example, Jesus. If you look back with me real quickly to chapter 2, Notice that Peter, when he gives commands, he's continually saying, you can't do this in your, of yourself. Look to Jesus. And that's exactly who we are pointed to. In verse 21 to 25 of chapter 2, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now verse 23, this is almost like a repetition of what he says in chapter 3, verse 9. Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten or slander, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So as the opposite of Jesus trying to get back to get even, what does the text say he did? He entrusted himself to the just judge. If we are called to follow in the example of Jesus, then we don't do these things drawing from our own strength. We look to our union, our bond in Christ. And realize that His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was placed within us to help us. And therefore, we live out of the reality of our union to Jesus. Not out of a mindset set on the things, the reactions of this world. So if it's not getting even... What is an outward focus in the Christian life? The last part of verse 9, it contrasts this. It says, but on the contrary, in other words, exact opposite of this here, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 
We see that the opposite of repaying evil for evil or slandering is to bless. They are, the text says, called to this very purpose. This is nothing new that Peter's writing. For instance, there's a few verses on the overhead. Uh, Luke chapter 6 says, But I say to you who hear, these are the words of Jesus. Uh, Do we have that on the overhead? But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Blessing and cursing, exact opposites. We also read, Paul writes in Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. 1 Corinthians 4, 12, it says, when reviled, we bless, when persecuted, we endure. You see, we are not to treat one another the way that, the wrong way we have been treated. We are to bless others. But the blessing here that Peter is referring to, it goes even deeper than simply doing kind things when other people treat us wrongly. There may not even be opportunity to do kind things when individuals treat us wrongly. We have to realize when we come across this word bless, the full scope of what the Bible teaches regarding blessing. Did you know in Genesis 12, when when God called Abraham out of Ur, his homeland, it said, Abraham, go to a land that I tell you. Leave everything you have. You are, in essence, going to be a sojourner and an exile in this world, but I am going to bring you to a land I promise to give you. You know what he says, goes on to say in Genesis 12, 1 to 3? He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, but guess what? You are going to be a blessing to others. What he's telling Abraham here, and the role that, that God's special people, which we are now a part of, what the role they were to play throughout the Bible is not simply to do gracious, kind things to one another, though that is definitely a part of it, it is the fact that we have a spiritual purpose in this world that we are to spiritually bless others. Say, well, how do I spiritually bless others? What was the role that God gave Israel in the Old Testament? That they were to mirror the one true God And in fulfillment of what God told Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to give you these things, and you are to be a blessing. uh, God's people of the Old Testament would bless the nations as they mirrored who God was. They had a function as a priestly nation to mediate God to the world. And do you know what Peter says in chapter 2 and verse 8? Or verse, excuse me, uh, verse 9? You are a chosen race, a what? A royal priesthood. What do we do as a priesthood? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you know the blessing that we are called to give in this world? Yes, we are called to treat people graciously and do good things even when we are wronged. In fact, Peter says that elsewhere. But even greater than that, we are called to be a blessing by representing Christ to those who are lost. And as people see that we live differently, we are not talking about other people the way they talk about us. We are not treating other people the way they treat us. There is a difference. We are mediating the blessings of God. 
We, we are, are, are asking God for his favor, his grace to be shown upon those who wrong us that they too would experience the goodness of Jesus in the gospel. Does that make sense? Man, that's a fuller sense of what it means to bless others. And that begins with our lives. And as God then brings opportunity, that comes through our words, as we will see a little bit later in two weeks in chapter 3. We are called to bless others through our priestly service of representing God to those that do not know him. And when we are seeking our own agendas and our own rights, we are literally hindering the witness of the gospel in other people's lives. What a tragedy. What a responsibility that we will be called to give an account for. And the text uh, goes on in verse 9. It says that we do, we, we bless others that you may obtain a blessing. In other words, a people that are destined for blessing must be a people of blessing. The blessing that Peter is talking about is not some type of earthly blessing or, you know what, God is just giving me all these good things. Uh, yes, he does do that, praise the Lord. But the blessing Peter's talking about is the blessing of an eternal inheritance forever with him finally being at home in the land of promise. Just like we read about in the Old Testament. So if we are looking to that ultimate blessing, Peter says an indicator that we are people of blessing is that we are living out of this identity in Christ and we are blessing others. So if someone is walking around with this self-focused mindset and there is no conviction, there is no desire of seeking a higher calling, then there is really no assurance there that this person really is a person of blessing or destined for this blessed inheritance by God. So this morning... We see that we remember who we are because who we are transforms our focus. But very quickly, secondly, who we are will reflect our hope. You see, Peter in verses 10 to 12 describes exactly how the blessed of God are to conduct themselves and be a blessing while they await their ultimate deliverance and salvation. In fact, speaking about this eternal blessing, this inheritance that is ours at Jesus' return, uh, uh, he goes on and he says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. In verses 10 and 11, we see hope for that eternal blessing is revealed in our walk. There is, verse 10 says, a desire to love life and to see good days. That if we are his children, we are to possess. This is not talking about our temporal life here on this earth, the way things are. It is not talking simply about good days, that yeah, I like good days as much as the next day. I like to pillow my head thinking this was a good day. When it talks about whoever loves life and see good days is talking about an eternal perspective. It's, he's referring to eternity. Remember chapter 3, verse 7. Men and women are heirs together of the grace of what? Life. 
We are heirs of eternal life. And Peter is saying here, when you are undergoing difficulty, when you are being treated wrongly, is your perspective, I am not going to live and respond the way society tells me to respond because my hope is set on something much greater. This is a desire to love life, to see good days. This is a desire that is manifested outwardly. Again, similar to verse 9, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. This has to do with our words. In fact, in Luke 6, 45, Jesus says that, that what comes out of the heart or what, what, what the mouth speaks is what is overflowing from our heart. So we do not need to somehow be surprised in the long run, we do surprise ourselves in the immediate, but what comes out of the heart, out of our mouth, is an indicator of what is inside us that we don't even realize. That's been painfully made clear to me with some sleepless nights and a cranky baby over the past three months. And that sounds funny, but that's actually reality. That it's easy to kind of just be like, oh yeah, that's everybody experiences that. But man, that's again God's grace of revealing the hidden so that we can give that over to him. But then he also talks about not only our words but our actions. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Two contrasts here. And then he says, let him seek peace and pursue it. A huge temptation when under pressure is that I want to return evil for evil. A huge pressure, a huge temptation when under pressure, man, I'm not going to seek peace. I'm not going to pursue that because my peace has been rattled. It's interesting that Peter here is quoting from Psalm 34, which he also did in chapter 2 and verse 3. In Psalm 34, guess what? David is writing, praising God for deliverance that he provided when he was in the land of Philistia, the Philistines' territory, and he was rescued from King Abimelech from having to go to war against his own people. And, and God delivered him from that predicament while he was in a foreign land. And he says, man, God delivers. And here's how God's people are to live in light of his deliverance. We're not to seek our own ways. We're not to return evil. We are to, to be looking to God as our defender. You see, Peter purposefully uses Psalm 34 because these Christians and we as well are in a similar predicament. We're in a land that is not our own, awaiting deliverance, and we can live faithfully knowing that God rescues and delivers. Is that your confidence today? Why can we have this confidence? Because verse 12 shows us God is attentive to us. God isn't somehow like, do, 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 do. I got so many people here to look, to look over. Oh yeah, I forget this guy. It's been, been, been a couple months since I've touched base. Let's peer through the clouds to see what's going on. That's not God. Look at what verse 12 says. This is how we, God is described. This is who God is. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You know how the scriptures uh, 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 describe God? That God is attentive to the righteous. We read here in verse 12, the eyes of the Lord, they're on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
We see here a progression, his eyes, his ears, his face. As one theologian says, this shows the total involvement of God among his people. There is not one thing that is missed. Of course, God is a spirit. God doesn't literally have eyes and ears and a face. This is, this is language to, to, to put God into terms we can understand. But look at what 2 Chronicles also tells us, same concept, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless to him. See, folks, just like Jesus did in purchasing our redemption, he did not revile in return. He did not try to get back He entrusted himself to God. Why? Because he knew that God is the only one who can be trusted. You can't entrust yourself to your spouse. You can't entrust yourself to a fellow church member. You can't entrust yourself to a judge. You can't entrust yourself to a really good lawyer. God is the one who you can entrust yourself to. He is the only one that does that will not fail us. He sees us. He hears the cry of his people. But then notice the end of verse 12. God is against the the unrighteous. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I mean, what's happening here, and you'll have time to talk about this in your small groups, is we see here both an encouragement and a warning. An encouragement that, man, if you are under the weight of oppression, you are being wronged. Keep following God. Keep living out of your identity in your union to Jesus. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't respond in a worldly way because God is aware of what is going on. He hears your cry. He will deliver. If not in this earth, ultimate deliverance forever with him. But let's be sure this is the path we're pursuing because if we choose to go our own way and we just disregard God You have to realize that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil.